Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. With Mother's Day this week, multi-talented poet, songwriter, journalist, political analyst, and self-described digital street philosopher, Caitlin Johnstone, and her powerful political poem dedicated to mothers in struggle. Just two weeks. And actually connected to the notorious U.S. history of holidays, both May Day and International Women's Day, officially delegitimized by the government, proclaiming Labor Day and Mother's Day respectively, the latter established as an official holiday by President Woodrow Wilson on May 9, 1914, in a bid to crush, along with the Palmer Raids, the militant labor, anarchist, and socialist uprisings sweeping the country back then. Here's Caitlin Johnstone. Just two weeks. I stand here before you in my mother's hand-me-downs, in this world where mothers must work like they don't have children and parent like they don't have jobs, keeping households running and bills paid while their hearts run around outside their bodies on tiny little legs that don't yet know where the wolves are but don't you dare over-mother them or under-mother them, or get anything wrong while treading laundry and kung-fuing the kitchen, and oh yeah, if you could just save the world from nuclear Armageddon and environmental collapse, when you get a minute, when you get a minute, when you get a minute, that'd be great. I stand here before you, in my mother's hand-me-downs, with my mother's strangled voice, and my mother's pine-soul hands, and my mother's weeping back, and my mother's feral chores, and my mother's loving patience, and my mother's gritted teeth, and my mother's inner beauty that you never get to see, her inner world of unheard symphonies, and unpainted art, and oceans of sleeping babies, neatly stuffed into a housecoat, drowned out by a Helen Reddy song. I stand here before you in my mother's hand-me-downs, glaring with crosshair eyes at the eel-faced manipulators who blacken the children's sky, who poison my children's water, who microplastic my children's blood, who scorch my children's earth to turn billionaires into trillionaires, vowing, I see you, I will stop you, right after this dentist appointment, right after this assignment. Right after these taxes, right after this to-do list, I will be ready to stop you like in two more weeks, maybe, or maybe two weeks after that. I stand here before you in my mother's hand-me-downs with my mother's intuition, two eyes in the back of her head. I can see what you are doing, but my many eyes can only glance before more dishes pile up, before the to-do list unfurls. I'll get to it. I'll get to you. I will stop you. I will. I see what you are doing. But I just need to take the kids to daycare and make the sandwiches first and stop off on the way to work for a part to fix the aircon before the summer comes, before the heat you stoked with dinosaur bones and Canary Island loopholes and the infantile ambitions of impotent men hits our little rental that I'm so grateful to have, so grateful, on my hands and knees grateful. Please don't kick us out, we love you, we do. Like a solar wind storm barbecuing my children in this tent made of weatherboards like a tiny funeral pyre for bad women, naughty witches, ladies flying solo who need to be put in their place. Just two weeks. Just two weeks. Just two weeks more. Just two weeks and I'll sit in silence for a while. Just two weeks and I'll write this all down. Just two weeks. I just need to get some stuff done. Just two weeks. Just two weeks. Just two weeks. And I'll stop you. And now on Arts Express, actress Famke Jansen is our guest on the program, discussing her female take charge roles in movies and as a simultaneously fierce and flawed mother in Knights of the Zodiac. First, some scenes from Knights of the Zodiac, then Famke Jansen, apparently dashing late from her interview on the morning show, and phoning into Arts Express while walking down a New York City street. I had a vision. 
people burning. Everything destroyed. It was Athena. She was doing it. I was doing it. We won't let that happen, boy. I saw what you did in the ring. I knew it had to be you, say it. What if I told you Sienna here is the reincarnation of the goddess Athena? And you are destined to become one of her guardian knights. How does it feel to be a goddess? Sometimes I feel like I'm a guest in my own body. Are you ready to start your training? The Pegasus Knight is brave, humble, and committed to protecting Athena with his life. How the hell did you do that? The war that awaits us is unlike any other before. I must save the rest of us from her. You think I wanted any of this? Power is a liability. Once he learns to control it, no living man will be able to stop him. You might want to buckle up. Thought you were the only knight in town? Walking, so that you're going to hear background noise for about four more minutes, but I'm running home. Well, that's so, okay. We'll just say that you're Because I was on a morning show, yeah, and I had to just, um, so now I'm, and there was a bit of traffic, so I'm walking the last bit to get home. Well, Sorry about that. Yeah, I don't hear anything, so that's fine. Could you hear me? Absolutely. Oh, great. Okay. And welcome to our show. Thank you. What was it about Knights of the Zodiac, this film and this story, that drew you in? Uh, you know, it's, I was not familiar with the anime that it was based on, Saint Seiya. Um, I really didn't grow up reading comics or any anime or anything like that. But uh, what I like about them, you know, being introduced to them much later in life, is that they're, they always seem to have deeper meanings than it is, you know, the sort of outsider kind of stories. And... What I particularly thought was interesting about the Senseiya story is that it's very much about, you know, having to find your inner strength to, you know, bloom into your full potential kind of thing. Um, and it's something that I think we all strive to do, hopefully. <laughs> but um, Gurat, the character that I play, is uh, very conflicted. She has an adopted daughter who is girl when she was younger blew off my character's arms so now she's left with these uh, bionic arms that can only function when she basically drains um, Cosmo with what's called Cosmos uh, from other people so she's kind of a handicapped superhero um, and so she she believes that the only way to save the planet is to destroy her own daughter um, so it's a very conflicted storyline for that character obviously um, but a very interesting character and uh, a fun project to be part of. And uh, what was it about Gorad? She's uh, she's a take charge woman over all these men, uh, and controls her, controls them very nicely. Did you pick up any pointers from the real world to play a strong woman who has power over men? <laughs> uh, well, let's just say I'm I was born and raised in the Netherlands. Uh, by a strong mother and in turn a strong, who had in you know, in turn a strong mother, my grandmother. So I think we're generations of, and I have two sisters, very strong, and four nieces, all very strong. <laughs> so I only know strong women really in my uh, immediate surroundings of my, my upbringing. Um, and so I, I guess I'm attracted to those characters and those characters are attracted to me. And Knights of the Zodiac is also about the universal conflict between generations, whether on or off screen. Uh, what can you say about that? The universal uh, conflict between generations. Yeah, it's uh, in this particular story. Yeah, well, just it's it's always gone on throughout history, but also 
from about this story, yes. Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm, I'm trying to think how that applies to this story in particular. Um, but, yeah, that is obviously something that is very much, very much part of, you know, the conflict of the ages and um, how to successfully get out of that. Mm. Or not, which most people seem to not be able to do. <laughs> now, your character has been described as, quote, a surprisingly complex antagonist, not a cartoon villain, but rather who's convinced she's doing the right thing. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, that's, I think when you play a character, the most important part to me always is, you know, to understand the inner workings, the inner conflicts, you know, the belief system of that particular character or person. And I very much believe that in the world, people, you know, they don't see them often don't see themselves as evil or, you know, good or we're all, you know, generally much more complex and conflicted people. Um, but so I think the interesting thing to me about Garad is, you know, she is what m- most people would probably consider doing things that are bad or evil or, you know. Um, not by the norm, but in her, in her mind, in, in, you know, she very much believes that she's doing this for the better of the world. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I try to make my characters as complex as I can. Usually they're, you know, especially the roles that I get offered are kind of more written in a, in a two-dimensional way. I had that from the moment I signed on to do this project, I started working with the director, um, because exactly of those reasons where I thought it was just some things were just too, too simplified. And I thought if this is a woman who's potentially willing to destroy her own daughter to save the planet, then we're going to have to see that conflict. And so we worked on it, and, and I'm proud that that collaboration worked in the way that it did. And speaking of navigating different worlds in this film, what can you say about the differences between Dutch and U.S. sensibility and culture that you've navigated as an actress here? Yeah, it's so <laughs> interesting because, they, you know, I, I mean, I came here when I was very young and I went to school here ultimately and I was a model here. And But growing up in the Netherlands, I think, you know, there's this Dutch saying, it's like basically like, act normal that's crazy enough and that is I think the opposite of what American life is about because American life is very much about you know the individual and how you get ahead and trying to become famous and you know worshipping athletes and uh, actresses and models and actors and you know whatever it is it's very much about standing out and being bigger and getting noticed and that's the it's really the of what Dutch culture is about. Mm. Um, so that was a very interesting, you know, uh, change in my life to grow up in, in, you know, in that much more modest mindset and then coming here and going, oh, wow. And, and now, in essence, I'm the example of the American dream. You know, I come from a very different background. Mm. And here I am, and I never would have been able to accomplish the things that I did if I'd stayed in the Netherlands. So, um, you know, there, there are many things I absolutely adore and love about the American uh, culture and, and lifestyle. Um, and then there are things that I miss because, you know, it, it still takes getting used to. I think in Europe, it's, you know, people eat at each other's homes. It's, it's much more personal and um you know, here when people say, like, how are you? Great to see you. Let's get together. Mm-hmm. It usually doesn't mean they want to actually do that. <laughs> so <laughs> that took some getting used to. And what led you to become the Goodwill Ambassador for the UN Office Against Drugs and Crime? That was a long time ago. I did that because, um, you know, I, I, was, I think it was right after I shot Taken and, um, uh, they came to me because, you know, they were interested in working with me and I was just interested in working with them. And that ended up being the perfect fit at the time. Um, I've also worked with Green Cross International on more water-related issues for the environment. And um, so, over, and then a lot of animal causes because that's really where my, my passion also lies. So 
these have just been over the years different different entities in different places where I've you know put my focus. Mm. And you and were... the most recent thing was you know I went to a rhino sanctuary while oh. I was filming in the UK in um in South Africa and that was life changing absolutely stunningly beautiful and sad and scary and amazing all at once. And you once said, quote, I don't want to be exploited. That, of course, is a real challenge not to be exploited. What are your thoughts about that? You know, it's, it's sort of the work in progress, I suppose, because when I look around and I'm not on social media, I'm not, you know, um, out there in the, in the world in the way that most people are, but it, it seems to me that people are trying to exploit um you know the press and the media and social media and all of those for the betterment you know of themselves or making more money and all of that but to me it backfires because you can't control the press the press ultimately always wins like it seems to you know um and then you have these major ups and downs in people's careers and lives when they depend on that kind of you know fame and success and everything that comes with it because as much as they build you up, they also can take you down. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure the industry has tried to exploit me, and I'm sure to a certain extent I've exploited it. So it's a complicated, complex relationship, I think. And um, But mostly I just try to be have integrity and, and do good work and, and let that be the focus of my life. Mm. And are you working on anything next? Oh, yes. Um, I've been working a bunch. I have a few more things that are coming out that I finished filming. Um, a movie called Locked In for Netflix that I believe is coming out later this year. Um, a movie called Boy Kills World. Um, obviously a very uplifting little story <laughs> with uh, Bill Skarsgård, who I've worked with before on Hemlock Grove, um, and a, a bunch of other fantastic actors. And... Um, a show called Then You Run, which we did. We filmed it in Berlin, and it's for Sky TV in, in America. I'm not sure who's going to pick it up, play a German in that. Um, and uh, oof, I always forget what I'm doing. <laughs> so, I'm just mostly like I'm running around traveling the world, and uh. you know, and then I forget what I do. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, yes, I've just, I think that's. These are some of the things, for sure. Oh, okay. And any last word about Knights of the Zodiac? I think you should see it, because in addition to it being, um, you know, a fun, action-packed, uh, great great stunts, great martial arts sequences and all, and, and all of that, but it's also it has heart. Um, it's, it's a beautiful story, and I think it has a deeper meaning. So mm. I'd encourage people to go see it. It's out on May 12th. Okay, and on when, three thousand uh, screens, so it's everywhere. Oh, okay. And when Fabka Chanson looks in the mirror, what does she see? Um, well, God, I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessive compulsive, so I tend to see things that probably no one else sees, and I'm very hard on myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to remind myself daily that I love myself and that you know I'm doing well, and um, yes, yeah. just a journey. Okay, and have you reached your destination? You've been walking. Um, no, I haven't reached my destination. You're still I think walking. Reaching your destination is is death. So no, <laughs> I hope to continue walking. No, no, I meant you said you're walking towards your next oh, location. Oh, destination <laughs> in the yes, in the in the simpler sense of the word. Yes, I have reached my destination. <laughs> I am home. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, and I guess that's your hotel. No, no, it's my home in New York. Oh, oh you have a home in New York. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. that's where I live, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for phoning into our show about Knights of the Zodiac. Thank you very much. You have a great, lovely rest of your day and weekend. You too. Bye. Okay, bye. And Knights of the Zodiac opens this week. I'm Jeremy Irons, 
and you're listening to Arts Express. Next on the show, Empire Hollywood, The Pentagon Calls the Shots. Since the dawn of American cinema, Hollywood has had a fascination with war. Americans traditionally love the fight. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Propaganda movies helped build support for World War I and II. So much so that the Pentagon started giving the studios access to military bases, aircraft, ships and submarines, even to off-duty officers acting as extras in their free time. The Hollywood Pentagon love affair soon became official. The military even created a whole new division, the Film Liaison Unit, with offices at the Pentagon and in Los Angeles. The relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon has been described as a mutual exploitation. General, welcome Mr. Stark. We're after military portrayal and thereafter our equipment. Multi-million dollar tour. Lessons for actors on how a military moves. You know, what would make the dialogue sound more real. Even down to making the uniforms look accurate. Most people these days, they're getting their information on who their army is from what they see on television. So that's, that's our mission here, to help filmmakers portray the army in an accurate or plausible manner. And it's to help recruiting. This marriage of interest has its compromises. In exchange for support, the Pentagon gets access to scripts and, by contract, can ask for changes. If you're willing to play ball and allow the changes that they want you to make, you get the stuff basically for free. You have to pay for the fuel if there's a jet flying around. We actually have a menu of this type of a helicopter. It costs this many thousands of dollars per hour, and they need to reimburse the taxpayer for that expense. But it's much cheaper to borrow the military's tanks than it would be to, you know, buy your own tank. After the film is completed, the admirals and generals will review it before it's released to the general public with their thanks to the Pentagon for its cooperation in all the various branches. Bill Strube is the, really the, the head of the whole operation. He uh, is often thanked in movies, so if you were to go to IMDB and type in his name, Phil Strube, you'll see all the movies that he's worked on. But the Pentagon can also say thanks, but no thanks. Films like Platoon or Apocalypse Now showing the dirty face of the Vietnam War were denied support. For some of those Vietnam-era pictures, every time soldiers and Marines went out into the field, they murdered officers, massacred civilians, they took drugs, and I think that the feeling was that that wasn't quite an accurate portrayal. So is the true face of war what the military's film unit is after? We are looking for a reasonably realistic portrayal of military people, does that translate to positive portrayal? And, and the answer to that is somewhat. After many pictures of veterans coming home damaged by the Vietnam War, Top Gun presented the perfect opportunity to rehabilitate the image of the military on the big screen. It was the most successful film mission accomplished. They shaped that picture top to bottom, made it just the way they wanted, and they actually put recruiting booths inside the theaters so that after people saw the movie, they could join up. Recruitment took a huge spike up when that movie came out. And that's when they really realized, boy, this, this kind of thing really works. It's almost like subliminal advertising. Take a look at that DVD. Filmmakers hoping to get that kind of support now know what the military is looking for. We don't have any preconceived showstoppers. Sacrifice, dedication, loyalty to the unit, those are some of the most important values. Even defeat can be shown 
as long as the U.S. military still looks heroic, like in Black Hawk Down, featuring the bloody 1993 U.S. mission in Somalia, a film that could not have been made without the Pentagon's Black Hawk helicopters. To have a seat at the production table, the relationship has now become even more open, allowing for some creative license. I am Optimus Prime. When you're fighting alien robots, realism's out the window. I think the only thing that's really taboo would be if the military was portrayed as a force for evil, and this behavior was tolerated. There are consequences to their bad behavior. Full metal jacket. So, shooting a civilian, issuing illegal orders, torture, you cannot show that on screen unless you also show that that person was punished. That's all we ask for. Is that really all the Pentagon asks for? I looked at tens of thousands of pages of correspondence between the producers and the military over script changes. And it's really shocking uh, the amount of control that they try to exert. This is what lays out that it has to be you know, beneficial to uh, recruitment and retention of personnel. Take Wind Talkers, a film about the Navajo Indians used by the U.S. military as code talkers in World War II because the Japanese couldn't translate their language. The film did get Pentagon support, but only under clear conditions. The Pentagon said, no, we won't show soldiers being ordered to shoot other soldiers. And besides, it never even happened. Well, it did happen. The way they compromised was that they hinted at that in the movie. Under no circumstances can you allow your code talker to fall into enemy hands. The actual order to kill them is never presented on screen. Your mission is to protect the code at all costs. You understand me? So that's how they got around that. In other cases, there was no way around it. 13 Days, a Kevin Costner production about the 1962 missile crisis, shows belligerent generals trying to push President Kennedy to go to war with Cuba. My boys will get those red bastards. The film was denied support, even if Kennedy's taping system proves the story to be true. They don't want to be seen as the ones who would have caused World War III. Uh, so the, the producers had to go to the Philippines and they had to rent jet airplanes of that era that didn't fly anymore, but they just had to drag them around on the tarmac behind uh, tractors and then use computer-generated imaging to make them look like they are flying. Fortunately, they stuck to their guns. It would have been an insult to history. The Hurt Locker is an interesting case. Initially, the military was going to give them support, and then at the last minute, the military pulled out. The liaison officer who was going to go and observe the filming learned that before he got there, some scenes had been filmed, he alleges, that were not in the approved script. And that insinuated a war crime, that a detainee would be shot by the military. And that's one of those red lines for the military. Since military equipment is paid for by the taxpayers, some argue the government shouldn't give or deny access to it just based on a film's message. The mission of the Department of Defense is to defend the nation, not to make films. So we're under no obligation. That's not our mission. Well, that might be fine if it weren't for the First Amendment. <laughs> well, I haven't noticed anything in the U.S. Constitution that requires the Department of Defense to provide support to any filmmaker who comes along. The government cannot favor speech that it likes and not give the same benefits to speech that it doesn't like. The Supreme Court ruled in 1995 that discrimination against speech because of its message is presumed to be unconstitutional. The government offends the First Amendment when it imposes financial burdens on certain speakers based on the content of their expression. This is exactly what the Pentagon is doing. So is this marriage of convenience legitimate and good for films, after all? Damn it, we got a unit under fire! When you're working with the government looking over your shoulder, are we really seeing the, what the writer would have written without that censor? I don't think so. Hollywood must be one of the most intrusion-proof institutions in the galaxy. If they don't like our input, our technical advice, they'll be the first people to say, you know what, no thanks. 
Many successful independent films are indeed made without support, but sometimes at high cost. Filmmakers are free to decide, lose their independence, or lose a lot of money. Hollywood likes it this the way it is now because it's much cheaper. The big loser in all this is the audience. What you're getting is sort of steady drip, 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 drip of propaganda being put into American films. And over the years, I believe that the real danger of this is that it's made the American people more warlike. Thank you, Al Jazeera, for that deep dive analysis probing the bizarre mutual exploitation between the U.S. military and Hollywood movies. And next up in the book corner, Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro in conversation with prolific author and historian Gerald Horn. Our guest today on I Fought the Law is Gerald Horn a prolific author and historian whose latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism, and who's also written for our purposes today, since we're going to talk about the war in Africa, From the Barrel of a Gun, the United States and the War Against Zimbabwe. Hi, Gerald. Hello, hello. Good to see you here. Um, okay, this segment is titled Me, Tarzan, You, are either with us or against us, Joe Biden's Africa policy. The U.S. is upset because Africa has largely remained neutral in the proxy war in the Ukraine against Russia. What really caught their attention, though, and prompted an immediate uh, call by Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was that South Africa, the third largest economy in Africa and often seen as a bellwether for how the continent will react, engaged in naval maneuvers last month with Russia and China. How has the continent generally reacted to the effort by the U.S. to draw it into this war? Well, the response has been lukewarm at best, and I think that's for a complicated set of reasons. Uh, number one, the North Atlantic countries do not necessarily have a savory reputation in independent Africa. Within the lifetime of many leaders is a very unpleasant encounter with European colonialism, Portuguese colonialism in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, uh, not to mention French colonialism through a good deal of African fact. You can make the argument that France's pretensions of being a major power still rest upon its neo-colonial relationship with many independent African states. And then, of course, France in particular has been implicated in, in many outrageous atrocities in Africa. I'm thinking of 1947 when tens of thousands of Madagascar were massacred by the French colonialists, not to mention the uh, bitter war of independence culminating in Algerian independence in 1962, uh, where before that date, you had uh, multiple massacres uh, by the colonialists uh, from France. And so it's very difficult for African states now to somehow see uh, this war in Ukraine spearheaded by the North Atlantic countries as being on the side of the angels, and I haven't even talked about the role of the United States of America, uh, a major beneficiary of the unlimited African slave trade, which by the way, deposited my ancestors on these shores. Not to mention the fact that the uh, United States was a major supporter and supplier of apartheid South Africa before independence in 1994. However, the problem for the North Atlantic countries is this, to the extent that they boycott Russia and Russia's natural gas, petroleum, uranium, that makes them more dependent upon natural gas from Algeria, petroleum from Angola, Nigeria, Gabon, which of course that latter country President Macron recently visited, uh, not to mention uranium uh, from uh, Namibia. So one would expect some sort of uh, adjustment in the relationship between the North Atlantic countries in and Africa because of this uh, ongoing dependency factor. But it's going to be very difficult for the North Atlantic countries to make that adaptation. Need, you need look no further than Italy and Prime Minister Maloney, uh, who, of course, has been a, a real Afrophobe, if I can coin a term, uh, with regard to lambasting uh, nationals, 
of Italy who happened to have roots in Africa, not to mention the migrants who were crossing the Mediterranean uh, to Italy. And so this leaves quite a problem for the North Atlantic countries. And as of now, it's unclear how the situation will eventuate. You know, you've given us a great historical, uh, you know, answer to this question. Um, now, colonial domination did not end with independence. This persistence is depicted beautifully in the opening of Usman Semben's film Zala, where the Senegalese take over the National Chamber of Commerce and chase the French out of the country, only in the next scene to have them return with briefcases full of money as the French bankers then position themselves behind the Senegalese economic leaders with the idea that it's they who are calling the shots. You can see this in Semben, Senegal, and the rest of West Africa, which the French still persist in calling Francophone Africa, as France still functions as the guarantor of the West African currency and until recently required those countries to deposit half of their foreign reserves in France. How is this post-colonial legacy being resisted in Africa? Oh, it's being resistant on all fronts, uh, although the odds right now are not as promising as they should be. I should also say that independent Africa is receiving significant uh, assistance, for example, from the People's Republic of China. And there hangs a tale because China has been in the forefront of building infrastructure uh, on the African continent. Uh, the sparkling new headquarters of the African Center for Disease Control in Ethiopia was built with Chinese assistance. That's good news for the health of Africans, bad news for Ebola and COVID-19. You have railways leading out of Addis Ababa, the capital, uh, to Djibouti uh, on the Red Sea, uh, built with Chinese assistance. You have railways leading from Nairobi and Kenya to Mombasa on the Indian Ocean coast built with Chinese assistance. And so China is a major factor in the economy of many African states. And that's really roiling the waters right now because to refer to our previous question and comment, China is now being accused by the North Atlantic powers, at least by the United States of America, of violating US imposed sanctions against Russia uh, it has been suggested that China is about to send so-called lethal weaponry to Russia, although China denies that. And so a new Cold War is emerging, and Africa either A, does not want to be part of that Cold War, or B, certainly does not want to ally with the former colonial masters and present neocolonialists uh, speaking of the uh, North Atlantic powers. And then Africa on its own, by dint of the African Union, is seeking to consolidate its resources. Uh, by dint of the African uh, Continental Free Trade Area, uh, which is a step towards a kind of Africa version of a kind of more progressive European Union, that is to say consolidation of African economies under one umbrella. And so this, process is moving forward. And I think it helps to account in many ways for why you see these frequent trips of President Macron uh, to Africa. I think his most recent trip to Gabon, Republic of the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Angola, et cetera, uh, may have been his 17th or 18th trip since 2017. And uh, it might not be outlandish to suggest that Mr. Macron is traveling so frequently to the continent that he may want to sublease an apartment there. <laughs> yes. Um, to pick up on that, the African countries must uh, also be weary not only of giving weapons to Ukraine, which they're trying to be compelled to do, but also strengthening NATO militarily, since they've been the victim of multiple Western military incursions. As you pointed out, Mali and Burkina Faso recently threw the French military out of the country, putting an end to France's supposed aid against terrorism. The French President Macron now says the French will act in military partnership with West Africa, even as he tries to extend French influence into Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And as he quotes the revolutionary Thomas Sankara, who the French are suspected of being complicit in killing. Do you see further moves toward military independence in Africa and movement away from the West? 
Well, certainly that's in motion, but it will not occur without a fierce struggle. Uh, I should add to your litany, the depredations planned and plotted by the so-called Africa Command of the Pentagon, the US military, uh, which is involved in many countries in which uh, France either is or has been involved in. Uh, I'm thinking of their role in Niger, uh, for example. And once again, it's rather curious that at the same time, you have US imperialism and French imperialism uh, complaining about uh, Russia and China and Africa, and yet uh, they have not seen fit to diminish their military ties to Africa. That is to say, they're playing the military card uh, repetitively, I'm afraid to say. And this does not bode well, because I recall that when you had the attempted coup and real coups that took place in places like uh, Guinea-Conakry, a former uh, French colony, that many of the leaders of such coups were actually receiving or had received military training in the United States of America. And so it's very curious that France in particular, which tends to play this role of being the mailed fist of the military on the African continent, at the same time has to re rely uh, quite heavily upon US satellite assets in particular in order to play that despicable role. And I think that that compromises the role of French imperialism, not to mention French sovereignty itself, because it makes it very difficult for France on the one hand to try to play the role of neo-colonial master in Africa. At the same time, it's heavily dependent in playing that role upon US imperialism. And so in other quarters, this has a negative downside risk for Paris uh, because it makes it difficult for France to complain when the United States passes a so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which supposedly will attract French industry and European industry across the Atlantic uh, to North America because of the subsidies involved in that legislation. Uh, not to mention how it becomes very difficult for France to execute an independent sovereign foreign policy when still maintaining ties to the US dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which by the way, it was only recently that President Macron said that NATO was brain dead. But yet at the same time, in a contradictory fashion, he tends to toe the line of NATO. Uh, this seems to me to be an unsustainable proposition that cannot last indefinitely. Good point. Um, speaking of, of, uh, of countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the most mineral rich of a continent full of minerals that the, the West needs to maintain its dominance, do you see new moves to try to break free of this persistent control and for Africa to refine in its own minerals? Yes, those moves are in motion, but it's very difficult because, as you know more than most, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo was formerly known as the Belgian Congo before the year of independence, speaking of 1960, from the late 19th century up until independence in 1960, it was a kind of private preserve of Brussels, uh, where forced labor was the name of the game and gross exploitation was its frequent companion. Uh, we all know that only recently, the leader of the anti-colonial movement in Congo, speaking of Patrice Lumumba, that the remains of his body were just repatriated back home to the Congo from Belgium. Interestingly enough, the remains in included, if not exclusively included, uh, one uh, gold tooth because the folks who killed him, including the US CIA chief, Larry Devlin, uh, basically destroyed his body, except for this one tooth, which was recently sent back uh, to his homeland. And that is a metaphor for the uphill struggle that the DRC is presently seeking to mount 
but I remain confident that they will be successful uh, in their campaign uh, because once again, they have a lot of goodwill uh, from the African Union, uh, from progressive and folks with goodwill uh, in the North Atlantic Bloc, including folks like yourself and myself. And so uh, I'm, I'm confident that the DRC will be able to overcome. Just to add, add a little point to that, uh, you know, when Macron was in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo recently, they asked him to help stop the war with Rwanda, help stop the incursions with Rwanda. And he said, well, you know, we're really uh, we're really interested, not interested in war anymore in Africa, you know. Uh, but of course, he was interested in invading Mali and uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, so, you know, it's very selective what he isn't interested, isn't, isn't interested in. Um, concerning this history of underdevelopment, a popular argument uh, for retaining African art in Western museums is that in the West, they're available to the whole world and Africa does not have the showcase for them. This argument is belied by the presence now of major museums in Dakar and Benin and Cape Town with the continent able to draw more tourists as more stolen objects are returned. Isn't this a kind of comment on underdevelopment where the West loots the artifacts, mineral wealth, musical culture, and you've written about jazz, and then claims it's the best repository for this wealth? It's really ludicrous, it's really ridiculous. And I should also mention that it's not only Africa and its artifacts and patrimony that has been plundered. Uh, of course, there's an ongoing controversy between Greece and London about London museums uh, containing illicitly the patrimony of Greece. And certainly, as you suggested, uh, if those who make that specious argument were really sincere, well, they would be in the forefront of seeking to build museums in Cape Town, in Dakar, in Benin, uh, where, of course, they have been notoriously absent. Thanks, Gerald. Okay, so for the last segment here, we're going to play Global Jeopardy, since with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, partly because of the possibility of a nuclear conflict because of this war, now moving the doomsday clock ahead to 90 seconds to midnight or planetary destruction, we're now all in Global Jeopardy. It's up to you to pick one category among the ones I will read. We'll look at the answer and together we'll try to form a correct question around this answer since the media often formulates the wrong question. And since in philosophy, it's often said the job is to ask the right question. So today's categories are how I live to love the bomb, how I learned to love the bomb. It's China's fault. Civilizing Africa. Oil, I want you. Oil, I want is you and poopery or collateral damage. So you pick one category. It's China's fault. Okay. So it's China's fault. So the answer is Muslim Uyghurs, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan all have this in common. Well, they're all being targeted now as being sites for alleged Beijing depredations. And of course, Taiwan is the real flashpoint. This is the island off the shores of southern China, a population of about 20 million or so compared to the People's Republic's 1.4 billion, the site of TSMC, a major producer of these computer chips, important for everything from smartphones to increasingly automobiles. Uh, there has been a quite a bit of loose talk in Washington of late about a war with China, although the Wall Street Journal just a few days ago reported on its front page that the United States was wholly unprepared for such a conflict. I hope that military planners in the Pentagon read that article, if not the advisors of Mr. Biden and the White House. And once again, uh, to come full circle, uh, many of the leaders and organizations in Africa are not only hotly opposed, needless to say, to what could amount to World War III, uh, but perhaps even more so or hotly opposed to the kind of militarism and jingoism and bellicosity, which increasingly is characterizing the policy of the North Atlantic countries towards the People's Republic of China. And once again, uh, there is an apparent fissure uh, between uh, Washington and the European countries, 
recall that just a few months ago, Chancellor Schultz in Berlin uh, flew to Beijing with a plane load of businessmen to cut deals with China at the same time this rhetoric in Washington was escalating. Uh, I have to say that I reference here as well Mr. Schultz's recent visit to Washington, where he flew into town and left within an hour or two, no press conference. And many of us suspected that this is because increasingly there are differences of opinion between the so-called allies. And of course, uh, when Mr. Schultz uh, went to China a few months ago, uh, it was expected that in a blockbuster deal that Mr. Macron and French businessmen would accompany uh, them, him, Mr. Schultz. And I think that this bespeaks the fact that the Washington uh, may have difficulty in rounding up a posse to go after the People's Republic of China, particularly to the extent that they're recruiting in Western Europe. And this does not bode well, I'm happy to say, for a new Cold War, not to mention World War III. Very good answer. And I guess the question would be, uh, if we put it in the form of a question, it's what are three hotspots that the U.S. media has created, any one of which uh, the the uh, United States would like to, uh, if they can, develop into a the, what would be a a war, you know, a, a war that would be a confrontation with China. Um, well, thank you very much, Gerald. Thanks for playing Global Jeopardy. You did very well, which means you get to come back and play Global Jeopardy again. And hopefully, we will not be playing Final Jeopardy. And that's it for I Fought the Law. See you next time. And in the meantime, keep fighting. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.